Last night I gave an overview of the seven factors of awakening, those seven skillful states of mind that, when completely in balance, provide the best conditions for deep insight to arise. As a quick reminder, they are mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy or rapture, tranquility, samadhi or stability of mind, and equanimity. And those of you who are familiar with the Buddha's teachings know that this last quality of equanimity appears at the end of several other numbered lists. For example, the four Brahma-Vihara qualities that we've been exploring in the afternoons, kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. It also appears in the list known as the ten parami, ten perfections, and these are particular qualities that can be strengthened in daily life. Generosity, ethical conduct, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, kindness, and equanimity. And equanimity is also a factor in the stages of uh, cultivating the jhanas, those uh, states of deep samadhi or absorption. So all of that just to highlight that equanimity has a very prominent place in the Buddha's teachings. Yet for many of us, this is the most challenging quality to understand and practice partly because I think it's not a quality that's very much valued in mainstream society, at least not these days. So I often joke that you don't often hear people saying things like, wow, when my son told me he'd just run over the mailbox in our new car, I was so equanimous. (laughs) Or I love listening to talkback radio because it gives my equanimity practice a real workout. That's not the way we usually relate to things. In fact, we're usually more addicted to drama, to the highs and lows of our life, than interested in this quality of equanimity. In fact, many people have probably never even heard the word until they came into Dharma circles. So tonight I'd like to take some time to explore what equanimity is, what gets in the way of it, and what supports it, so that we can cultivate it as a very powerful resource, not just in our formal meditation practice, but in our daily lives too. So what is equanimity? It's an old-fashioned word. It's not used much in English anymore, but it basically means balance. The heart-mind that's completely at ease, not wanting anything and not not wanting anything, not resisting. So it's the capacity to simply be with what is in a state of deep acceptance and peace. And in the context of the seven factors of awakening that I spoke of last night, equanimity arises out of the stability of mind that comes from samadhi. Because when the mind is completely stable and still, undistracted and absorbed and unified, there's no room for any of the hindrances to be present. And this quality of samadhi that supports equanimity can be cultivated on deeper and deeper levels. 
And it supports equanimity because it requires letting go. So last night I mentioned that I try not to use the word concentration as a translation for samadhi, because in English, concentration has connotations of forcing and fixing and trying to get or attain some (coughs) kind of special state. But the U.S. Dharma teacher, Shinzen Young, he describes how true samadhi is about relinquishment. It's not about attainment. He says, in real concentration, one simply rests the mind on the object at hand and then proceeds and then proceeds to let go of everything else in the universe. Now, it's possible that we might not yet have quite let go of everything else in the universe, but even the more preliminary experiences of samadhi can be satisfying. And with that satisfaction, the mind quite naturally wants to let go of its usual habits of wanting and not wanting. And it becomes, at least temporarily, free from greed, hatred, and delusion. Then the heart-mind becomes still, perfectly balanced, deeply at ease, not moving towards or away from anything. And this is equanimity. When equanimity is fully perfected, its experience is a peace so profound it's beyond anything that our ordinary hearts and minds can comprehend. And then, as it says in the refrain from the Satipatthana Sutta, we abide independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So in many ways, equanimity is the pinnacle of the Buddha's teachings. And this is how Joseph Goldstein describes it. He says, equanimity has far-reaching implications, both for how we live our lives in the world and for the unfolding of insight on the path to liberation. From one perspective, one could say that the whole path rests on the maturing of this powerful enlightenment factor. So as Joseph mentioned, equanimity is a quality that can be developed both in our everyday lives and in formal meditation. And in this, it's a little different from samadhi, which generally requires uh, formal practice to develop on the deepest level. So we can cultivate equanimity in our daily lives as a support for equanimity as an awakening factor. And the opposite is also true, that the more deeply we can establish equanimity in meditation, the stronger it will become in daily life. It's possible, though, that for some of you, this quality of profound peace might sound very challenging or unrealistic or even just completely impossible. You might be thinking, well, yeah, it sounds great, but you don't know what's going on in my life right now. But again, the good news is that we can train in this quality. It's something that can be cultivated and developed through practice. That's why it appears as one of the Brahma-viharas and also one of the ten parami that I just mentioned. And so tomorrow afternoon we will be doing a little bit of equanimity practice in the last of our Brahma-vihara sessions. Tonight, though, I want to focus more on equanimity in the context of insight practice because there's a powerful connection between equanimity 
and the liberating wisdom that's the goal of all of these teachings. As we get more familiar with this quality, we can start to enjoy the clarity that comes from being in this state and to experience for ourselves how it supports clear seeing or insight. So the Pali word, which is usually translated as equanimity, is upekka. And this word upekka has a lot to do with seeing, with vision. So it links directly to insight. The literal translation of upekka means to look over, which suggests being in a position to see the bigger picture. So I think of it as a bit like climbing up a mountainside. After a lot of uphill effort, I might finally get above the tree line and then I can look back down below to where I came from and suddenly see it in a whole new context. There's openness and expansiveness. I'm just not just stuck in my own narrow viewpoint anymore. And that change of perspective is a kind of freedom. So equanimity then is a training of the heart and the mind that helps us to deepen our capacity to experience freedom and to become less dependent on external conditions for our happiness. As we know, uh, without any training, most people look for their happiness in all the wrong places, namely in trying to change external conditions. And this is only ever partly successful and it keeps us dependent on things being a certain way in order for us to be happy. But as I keep emphasizing, all of these trainings are helping us to change our inner relationship to things so that we have a better chance of being happy no matter what our external circumstances are. We have the freedom to experience some degree of ease even when life is challenging. So equanimity gives our hearts and minds a kind of deep stability. And another analogy that I use for this is, I sometimes think of equanimity as being like the keel of a boat. Perhaps some of you have spent time on sailing boats. Quite a long time ago now, I had the chance to live on board a small wooden sailing boat, a yacht. It was pretty broken down and it had been out of the water for a long time when I and my boyfriend of the time spent some time trying to fix it up. And one of my tasks was to sand down and repaint the keel, which was this massive uh, lead keel, which I heard weighed about one ton. And the boat was only 10 meters long, so it seemed like a huge amount of weight for a little boat. But once we got it in the water, I understood why it needed that amount of lead on it. Because the wind and the waves and the the sails sometimes brought the boat leaning very hard over, but it was the keel that stopped it from capsizing. And it was the keel that allowed the boat to steer through the waves and the wind instead of just bobbing about randomly on the surface like a cork. So equanimity is a bit like that. Like the boat, we are subject to changing conditions of life. Metaphorically, the wind and the waves and the tides and the ocean currents. 
But equanimity, the keel, lets us navigate through all these without flipping over or flipping out. And at times where, when conditions are strong, we might lean hard over, but thanks to the keel of equanimity, we don't capsize or sink. So hopefully you're getting a sense that equanimity, like the keel of a boat, is very powerful and it's usually invisible. But sometimes as we start trying to orient towards this quality in our meditation practice, it seems like what, how we mostly relate to equanimity is through its absence. But that's okay too, because in the instructions from the Satipatthana Sutta, the instructions in relation to the awakening factors are to know when they're present and when they're absent. So if we fa- the fact that we know that equanimity is absent means that we're doing the practice. This instructions then go on to say that if we do recognize that equanimity is not present, we need to find ways to help it arise. And then once it has arisen, to prolong and perfect it. So these are the instructions from the Satipatthana Sutta. They're the same for each of the awakening factors, but I'll read it just for equanimity. If the equanimity awakening factor is present in one, one knows there is the equanimity awakening factor in me. If the equanimity awakening factor is not present in one, one knows there is no equanimity awakening factor in me. One knows how the unarisen equanimity awakening factor can arise and how the arisen equanimity awakening factor can be perfected by development. So given that much of the time, especially in the early stages of the practice, we do tend to get caught in non-equanimity, in reactivity very easily, I'd like to take a little bit of time now to talk about a few techniques that can help us manage reactivity, to help it release, so that we can come back to balance, to equanimity more quickly. And the first protection against reactivity is, anybody like to guess? Very good, yes. (laughs) Mindfulness, knowing what we're doing as we're doing it and knowing that we know. Or to return to Bhikkhu Analyo's definition, KC, KC, keep calmly knowing change. And as we can hear from that definition, mindfulness itself has this quality of non-reactivity built into it. The calmly knowing change. And as I've been emphasizing so strongly throughout the retreat, this quality of bare awareness. So in the first three foundations of mindfulness, the instructions are simply to know our experiences as they are without trying to change them in any way. And then as I mentioned yesterday, When we get to the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the instructions shift a little. And here we are encouraged to get involved with our experience to some extent. So if we become aware of a skillful mental state, we try to help it stabilize and strengthen. If we become aware of an unskillful mental state, we try to help it release. 
And although we might understand this on a cognitive level, when a challenging emotion does come up with more intensity, it's not so easy to release our habitual ways of relating to it. Often when we first come into contact with some particularly intense emotion, the first response is to clamp down, to contract, to tighten, to brace against or resist it in some way. And if mindfulness is strong, we might notice that resistance very directly in the body. Perhaps the jaw clenches or the shoulders hunch or the arms brace or the large muscles of the thighs contract. We all can learn to recognize for ourselves that what muscles uh, come with that first reaction to a, a very unpleasant emotion. And this sudden contracting can be very powerful feedback signal to remind us to relax, to soften around the contraction and to try to give it some space. So in support of this, I like to use a mantra that I borrowed from the Zen teacher, Charlotte Joko Beck. This is the mantra of ABC, which stands for A Bigger Container. And it's an invitation to make a bigger container, to make space around the contraction so that the energy of it doesn't feel quite as powerful. So an analogy for this is like a, putting a wild horse in a small corral. If it's in a small space, it goes crazy. But if we can let it out into a bigger field, its energy is the same, but because it's in a bigger container, it doesn't have the same impact. So ABC is this invitation to make a bigger container for our challenging reactions. And the mantra has to be as simple as ABC because when we're in the grip of a strong reaction, we usually aren't able to remember more complex information. So how do we actually make a bigger container? For myself, when I feel that clamping down or tightening, I try to give it space by physically and mentally making more room for it. So I might take a deeper breath and really fill the lungs and try to open the chest and open the shoulders. I might sit up straighter and try to make the body bigger so there's more room in the body to counteract that kind of hunching and folding in around the difficulty. If that doesn't feel like enough, I might open my eyes and take in the space of the room. So I'm making the container even bigger and including the space of the room that I'm sitting in. If it's possible and if necessary, I might look out of the window for a few moments and if I can see the sky even better because the sky is infinite space and just that visual reminder sometimes can help give me more perspective or more context. At other times, depending on the situation, I might sort of visualize a um, space or light opening up around the darkness and the tightness or I might try to sense a kind of a fine vibrational energy that might just dissolve the solidity of the challenge. So these are just a few uh, of my own ways of making space, of creating a bigger container 
there's really no right way and you can be creative and explore for yourself how you might find ways to make more space. And when I'm able to do this, the intensity of the reaction subsides and then equanimity can start to come back into play. However, particularly in daily life, when we don't have the supportive conditions of the retreat, we're more likely to get caught in our reactivity and find ourselves saying or doing things that we later regret. And sometimes on retreat, these regrets come back to haunt us. So if we find ourselves uh, thinking about a particular situation over and over again, or experiencing a similar pattern of painful emotions over and over again. This could be a good time to practice what I jokingly call post-mortem mindfulness. So as you know, mindfulness is usually in the present moment. But better late than never applies here, and sometimes it can be useful to go back and look at how a situation evolved So technically, this is more a form of inquiry or investigation than mindfulness. But in my own practice, I found it useful at times after the fact to see if I can go back and sort of see almost blow by blow, how did that situation play out and where did I get caught? And I like to do this kind of investigation really in the body as much as I can because usually my intellect just goes over and over the same old, same old, and often that repetitive thinking is an unconscious way of distancing myself from feeling the underlying emotions. So when I'm doing post-mortem mindfulness, I usually will do it lying down, and I might put one hand on my belly and one hand on my heart so that I can really feel into the physical sensations in the body. And then I try to really listen, to tune in to the body and the heart and to connect with any physical sensations that might be present, any emotions that might be percolating, sometimes images and unexpected memories come up or different kinds of associations start to show themselves. And sometimes this reveals new information that helps me to understand my default patterns and reactivity more clearly. So that next time, if a similar scenario is starting to play out, I have a better chance of not falling into the same pattern again. There's just one caution about this process, though. If the reactions or the emotions that we're exploring are very intense or perhaps even traumatic, we might need to explore them in what I call homeopathic doses. So just in small amounts, enough to strengthen our immune system (coughs) without overwhelming it. So I think of this as the practice of touch and go. We touch into the painful responses for a very limited time and then when the time is up we go go to something or somewhere that's pleasant nourishing restorative or if that's not possible for some reason go into 
pleasant sensations that might be present in the body right now. Or if even that's not possible, perhaps bring to mind a memory of a time when we felt safe and whole and happy and at ease. Now, sometimes when people hear this instruction, they think it's somehow cheating and that we're supposed to just drill down into our most painful, deepest, darkest memories and stay there. But trying to do this often just overwhelms us and actually can even strengthen the painful pattern. So instead, it's much more skillful to set limits in advance, perhaps even set a timer. In the beginning, perhaps for a minute or even just 30 seconds and see how you go. And then at the end of that time, when the bell rings, we metaphorically or perhaps literally bow, thank you, and now go to whatever helps us to feel supported and centered and grounded. So with this training and cultivating equanimity, often we're initially working to release these deeper reactive habit patterns. And then we have more stability of mind, we're able to get a bit clearer about what's causing the reactivity. And if we look carefully, we almost always see that what's getting in the way of equanimity is some kind of identification with our experience, some way that we're taking it personally, believing it to be me and mine and who I am. So a very powerful support for equanimity is to do what we've been doing on this retreat, training in recognizing all the ways that we construct a sense of self out of the raw material of our experiences at the six sense doors. So we construct this sense of self and then we identify with it and make it real and solid and permanent. But if we really pay attention, we can see that that identification is suffering. So the other night I gave Shinzen Young's mathematical formula for dukkha or suffering as S equals P multiplied by R. Suffering equals pain multiplied by resistance. And another way of expressing this formula might be S equals P times I. Suffering equals pain multiplied by identification. And the antidote to this particular form of suffering is to keep reorienting the mind towards the truth, the understanding of anatta, of not-self. And in my own practice, at times I've explored this using a short quote from the teachings of Ajahn Buddhadasa. He's a meditation master uh, from Thailand in the last century, and I quoted him the other night in relation to temporary and complete nibbana. And in his famous book, Hardwood of the Bo- Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree, He explains how all the Buddha's teachings can be condensed into the understanding that nothing is to be clung to as I or mine. And I still remember the first time I read that statement pretty early in my practice. Nothing is to be clung to as I or mine. 
and the mind just kind of went a little bit crazy. What? Nothing? But what about my health? It must be okay to want to be healthy. Mm, it does say nothing. Okay, nothing. Really? But what about my relationship? It's okay to want a good relationship, isn't it? it says nothing. All right, nothing. But what about my Dharma practice? That, that's got to be okay. I must be okay to want to make progress in the practice, right? Nothing. <coughs> so I notice this phase of like bargaining and scrambling and trying to get some solid ground under my feet before I understood that it's the clinging that's being pointed to, not the things themselves. So nothing is to be clung to as I or mine. So after reading Ajahn Buddha Dasa's statement and finding it so challenging, I decided to try to practice with this recognizing where there was clinging to a sense of me and my and mine. And I started to pay attention to my own inner dialogue and particularly to pay attention to any thoughts that began with I am dot 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 whatever dot 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 happened to be. And one thing that happened was that I noticed the effect on the body of these I am statements. When the mindfulness was very strong, I noticed how every time there was an I am thought, there was a subtle or not so subtle tightening or stiffening or contracting in the body. The other thing I noticed was that how most of these I am statements, when I really looked, were actually untrue. And this was quite shocking <laughs> to see how many of these statements were actually at best only partially true and even then only temporarily they were almost never completely true. So as a very simple example I was coming into the hall on retreat one day and I heard myself say I'm always late. Now, it sounds relatively benign but when I looked I realized well really am I always late? On this situation, I'm almost late. Yesterday, I was actually three minutes early. Sometimes I'm early, sometimes I'm late. But for some reason in that moment, my mind wanted to cling to identification with I am late. And that's a fairly innocuous example. And there are plenty more that were not nearly so benign. So this training in paying attention to these I am statements can really show us how we're constructing this sense of me. And often these statements are paired with always or never. So in the example I just gave, I am always late. So there's this sense of perpetuating and solidifying and permanentifying, that's not really a word, but making permanent our experience, making me at the center of it permanent. So just tuning into this habit of creating narratives, rehashing our stories, selectively taking episodes from our past and stringing them into a whole concoction and then inhabiting that story as if it was absolute truth is a very common habit. And at least at first, when we start to 
try to release it, often we seem to prefer the dukkha of identification because at first the spaciousness of equanimity can feel a little too spacious. As I said earlier, we're addicted to the highs and lows of our lives. We don't even notice the mid-range. We might even be afraid of it. And many people believe that unless they're fully in drama mode, they're somehow less than alive. But this is because they haven't tasted the deep relief, the ease and the peace that come from knowing true equanimity. And I qualify it as true equanimity because when we hear equanimity described in terms of non-reactivity or neutrality, sometimes there's a misunderstanding that it means a kind of flat or blank non-responsiveness. And in mainstream culture, sometimes people say things like, oh, they were being very Zen. And what that usually means is that the person was... uh, doing nothing while some kind of massive crisis was going on. But this is not what equanimity is pointing to at all. That will be more a form of denial. True equanimity is a very refined form of responsiveness that sees exactly what's going on and knows an appropriate response. So there's wisdom to it. It's not deadness or disconnection or disengagement but there is a stability to it that feels quite different from our usual reactivity. So equanimity is not disconnection, and as we train in it, it's a kind of a training in emotional literacy so that we can start to recognize the difference between the true balance that is equanimity and perhaps a more defensive deadening or disconnect. And one way that I've learned to do this in my own practice is to pay very close attention to the body. Because when there's true equanimity, I can feel a subtle, alive kind of energy, a vibration of responsiveness and a sense of ease and balance in the body. Whereas when I'm caught in the near enemy of equanimity, which is indifference, there's a kind of a blankness or a numbness or a deadness or a kind of a subtle hollowness. So we each will have our own physical symptoms of how equanimity shows up and learning to recognize these is really the key to distinguish between true equanimity and its near enemy of indifference or on a bigger scale uh, what's sometimes known as spiritual bypassing. So spiritual bypassing refers to that tendency to try and use the practice to avoid dealing with uncomfortable emotions or uncomfortable life situations. To stay within or even to reinforce our comfort zones. And the Buddhist psychologist John Wellwood was the first person to come up with this term a few years ago because he'd noticed some common habits in himself and many of the clients and sanghas that he was involved with. He says, spiritual bypassing is a term I coined to to describe a process I saw happening in the Buddhist community I was in and also in myself. Although most of us were sincerely trying to work on ourselves, I noticed a widespread tendency to use spiritual ideas and practices 
to sidestep or avoid facing unresolved emotional issues, psychological wounds, and unfinished developmental tasks. Meditation is also frequently used to avoid uncomfortable feelings and unresolved life situations. For those in denial about their personal feelings or wounds, meditation practice can reinforce a tendency towards can't quite read this tendency towards coldness, disengagement, or interpersonal distance. Such people are at a loss when it comes to relating directly to their emotions or to expressing themselves personally in a transparent way. It can be quite threatening when those of us on a spiritual path have to face our woundedness or conditional or emotional dependency or our primal need for love. So if we do notice any tendencies in ourselves, again, it's important to have some self-compassion because pretty much all of us at some stage of our practice might find ourselves using this strategy. And especially for people new to practice, it can often show up our unconscious beliefs about what the spiritual path is about. So in the early stages of practice, it's common to have quite a binary or dualistic or linear approach to meditation and to to assume that our progress is going to happen in a nice, straight, diagonal upward line. So down here on the bottom end of the graph is this kind of all the uh, messy, misery-inducing issues of our life that we hope our meditation is going to take us away from. And as we progress, we're sort of aiming up here to some vague idea of nirvana. So one way that uh, these two realities are sometimes spoken of is in terms of relative reality and absolute reality. And relative reality is all the messiness of our lives, the painful childhood history or the complicated relationships and the repetitive, afflictive emotions and the stress around work and money and family life. And we hope that this nice straight line of our practice is going to pull us out of relative reality into ultimate or absolute reality, the unconditioned or nibbana. And even experienced practitioners can find it confronting to keep being reminded that the practice almost never develops in that nice, straight, conveyor belt kind of way. In practice, especially on retreat with these cycles of purity and purification, it can feel more like a roller coaster at times. Or in the US, they have those bizarre mechanical bucking bronco things. And sometimes the practice feels like that, that we're just hanging on for grim life. So we might hear concepts like absolute and relative reality and think that the point of practice is to get as far away from relative as possible and hang out in absolute. But the English Dharma teacher Rob Berbea has pointed out that most of us do have a tendency to want to stay more towards one end of this uh, duality than the other. 
So some of us actually feel more comfortable at the relative end, where we can be immersed in our life stories and the particularities of our psychology and our relationships and all the different identities that we play in the world. And the idea of the absolute sounds pretty unappealing. Others are fascinated by the idea of the absolute and want to just hang out in some kind of cocoon where we're completely unaffected by anything or anybody. So it might be helpful to look at our own practice and see is there any kind of bias to want to be in one place along this spectrum. Because true freedom is not about being free just in one place. True freedom is the ability to move across the whole spectrum with equal ease, with equal equanimity. And this is a pretty advanced level of practice. But when we do learn how to let go of our clinging even to our views and opinions about practice and how it's supposed to be, then the practice starts to develop its own momentum. The more we can get out of the way, the more the insights begin to unfold quite naturally with the effortless effort that I mentioned the other night. So to get a sense of that, I'd like to finish with another quote from Joseph Goldstein, It's quite long, but it might uh, give some helpful perspective on the various phases that our practice naturally goes through as the awakening factor of equanimity becomes stronger and the progress of insight develops. So Joseph says, as each of our insights mature within us, we pass through various stages. In some stages, the mind is filled with exhilarating rapture when we see clearly for the first time the very rapid rise and fall of phenomena. In other stages, there is a great clarity when we understand more deeply what is the path and what is not. Here, we learn not to cling even to the special meditative states of rapture and happiness. There are also periods of profound distress when we see that nothing at all in conditioned existence can provide a true and lasting happiness. But if we persevere on the path, we reach the culmination of mundane meditative insights, which is the powerful state of equanimity about all formations. This is a state of deep delight born of peace. Here, the mind is not disturbed at all by the alteration of pleasant and unpleasant experiences. We abide in a smooth current of awareness without even the slightest micro-movements of reaction in the mind. At this point, equanimity has balanced all the other factors of mind and the practice is rolling along all by itself. This stage of stable equanimity is likened to the mind of an arahant, which is unshakable with regard to anything arising in the field of consciousness. It's useful to remember that one isn't actually an arahant yet, but stable equanimity is a taste of what the Buddha repeated many times in the Satipatthana Sutta. One abides independent, not clinging to anything 
in the world. So may we all experience this deepening factor of equanimity, which leads to deeper and deeper peace and freedom. Thank you for your attention.